Hey lunatics, you're listening to Let the Meat Grass, a podcast exploring real food, broken ecosystems, and a better way to live. I'm Austin Williams, your farmer and podcast host. Before I began farming, I was a public school teacher who had grown up in the suburbs of St. Louis. And if you were like me, you had no idea what was real or who to trust when it came to our food. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a chance you've begun to doubt what huge food corporations are trying to sell you is as healthy as it's cracked up to be. And for good reason. I'm dedicating this show to you, the lunatics, the crazies, who have chosen to opt out, to stray beyond the safe and familiar confines of grocery store walls to support a farmer. And not just any farmer, but a farmer whose mission is to heal the land and nourish the people. You see, conventional farms are dying. We've been losing farmers for well over a century now. When 100% of us eat and only 1% of us farm, we have a math problem. Help me do the math by sticking around, listening closely, and voting with your forks to support real food. See you soon. Hey, Lunatics, you're listening to another episode of Let Them Eat Grass. Uh, I'm here today with a very special guest. Uh, his name's Rashid Nuri, and he has been farming in some way, shape, or form uh, for the better part of his 75 years. Uh, he's currently living in Atlanta, Georgia, but he's been all over the world to many different countries, and uh, he believes very deeply in what we believe in, uh, which is that uh, he, and he calls it salvation in the soil that in the soil is where everything begins and it's what we have to really take care of so mr nuri uh, i'm really glad that you're here with us on the show today welcome thank you very much austin it's a pleasure to be here with you i'm really glad that we could have you on um and i think that's really cool uh that we're getting to have this conversation because most of the people listening to this don't own you know or manage a 900 acre farm uh, or two farms at least that equal 900 acres like I do like most people who are listening to this aren't farmers there are people who live in cities in communities and they often live very far away from the food supply and and where their food is produced Um, is that the case in Atlanta Georgia as well well for the most part yeah I mean you know the average American food is is ship 1500 miles on average um so that's taking into account those here on the east coast and those in the, in the, the center of the country so on average 1500 2000 miles is what you generally see um if the human kind used to live within walking distance of where the food was produced that doesn't exist anymore that's pretty crazy because i know like back even during even as i guess early as the civil war i mean the south was known and for really unfortunate reasons, it was known as like the breadbasket that had just tons of crops that it's made. But even in just 150 years, it's changed to where, you know, Southerners, even in Atlanta, Georgia, aren't in touch with their own food supply. Oh, yeah. I, w- I would uh, amend what you said just a bit. The South produced cotton. They play the cotton. Cotton is still king in the world. It's the most valuable crop there is outside. Uh, only thing more valuable than cotton is marijuana, cocaine, and uh, poppies, uh, drugs. Um, a, a barrel of oil, which is about the same size as a barrel of a bale of cotton, sells for what sixty dollars now. Um, the cotton is over four hundred dollars. Just to show you, 
So that's why the soils in the South got mined, and that was primarily what was grown until George Washington Carver taught the South, saved the South, Southern Africa agriculture by introducing crop rotation, soybeans, peanuts, sweet potatoes, so they could rotate the crop and not just mine it growing cotton. Um, but here in Georgia, the, the bread basket, what's so-called bread basket of Georgia is in southwest Georgia. That's where they grow the commodity crops, cotton, corn, peanuts, same things I just mentioned, cotton, corn, peanuts, um, soybeans, canola these days. And believe it or not, the worst health statistics in the state are in the southwest portion. So farmers do not even grow their own food anymore. We've gotten so far away from the fundamentals of agriculture, and it has a very deleterious effect upon the health of the community. Um, these are the things that small farms and urban agriculture can uh, help reduce those problems and, and make us healthier. And it's, I just want to like compliment you on just like it seems like how even though like you are you know you operate an urban farm like you know you are very knowledgeable about you know the prices of commodities and the prices of cotton like things that are like kind of with outside of the realm of what you work with day to day and i think that has a lot to do with uh your education and with your upbringing and i just i just lo- want to invite you to explain how because i feel like you you're a farmer now, but I feel like you you didn't start at a farming level. You you really I mean you got a Harvard an education at Harvard, and you kind of almost started from uh, ten thousand feet in the air. And you wanted to start when you saw in as you did, had described it earlier um, in this post colonial world, and you were interested in nation building. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you started at nation building in the sixties and you kind of ended up farming in the Southwest corner of Georgia. <laughs> no, so I did that too. I'm in Atlanta now, which is up in North, North central, which is Piedmont. Um, my interest in, in agriculture, I'm a city boy and, uh, I got involved in agriculture cause I was interested in, in, uh, nation building. You have to be able to feed, clothe and shelter your family. You have to call yourself a nation. For me to be a, a father or a community, those are the fundamentals that have to be provided by for. And I was, I was, uh, I was trying to decide. Being a child of the '60s, we were talking about nation building, uh, reclamation of the black community. Um, I was trying to decide what was the skill that I wanted to have, what was the practical skill that I wanted to have. And I looked at being a carpenter to build, a printer. Um, for communication, newspapers, and magazines. And God told me to learn everything about food from the seed to the table and to do it experientially. And that was a great relief. Many young people spend time trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives. And for me, that was a, it created a great deal of freedom because I, I felt I didn't have a choice. This is what the message that I received, what I'm supposed to do, and I pursued that. So that is what has taken me around the world. There are a lot, many people who have a greater depth of knowledge in any particular area of agriculture, uh, but very few have the breadth of experience that I've had. I've worked in feed seed, poultry, oil seed processing, um, you know, commodity production, big farms, small farms. The very first work I did out of university was develop 
community garden. Actually, the same thing I did at the end, community garden, uh, working with children in schools, uh, urban farms. And people thought I was, I'm crazy now. You can imagine what they had thought back in the early 70s about this work, talking about or, urban and organic agriculture. Um, so it's, I've worked in 36 countries. I lived overseas for many years. So I've had a chance to see how agriculture is manifested and the role that local food economies uh, play uh, in developing nations. So this goes back to the beginning of your question here, uh, how we're, we're, we're not near our food. That's a fundamental concern because it, it, the, the natural order of things is broken. And I think that the best way to learn agriculture is to emulate nature. If you can't see it in nature, don't do it. You watch, you look at the history of agriculture and how uh, it has developed over time. Those are the techniques that, that are going to work. Um, the stuff that, that has been induced, which is all petroleum-based chemicals uh, of, of the last 75 years, that's what's destroying agricultural base. Big ag, the big ag system, big ag paradigm that exists in this country is fundamentally broken. Uh, they don't realize it yet. They kind of, China, uh, um, they have, they had to have lots of subsidies in order to make it work. And that subsidies is why I think that same level of, of uh, um, infrastructure construction needs to be applied to small farms and urban agriculture to take us to the future. And you've got 800 acres for an animal farm. That's not big. No, that's it's not. not big at all. No, not uh, compared to some places out west. Yeah, and you get out with that. They got big farms out there, big ranches. Get all them cows and put them on a feedlot. They have to give them antibiotics because they're laying around in their own feces. That that's not correct. That's not what you see in nature. Um, so that needs to be adjusted and corrected. And I hope that 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 is what I, my the intent of my work is to correct some of those things. And I think it's it's awesome that you kind of see your job as a correction and kind of almost a return to the way God intended it to be. And I, I want you, I want to dig a little bit more into how you said that, you know, you felt like God was telling you to learn everything you could about seeds and all the way up. Like, how do you feel like your, your faith and your relationship with God impacts the biblical mandate of stewardship or of just, or of just, you know, keeping the earth beautiful and functioning and alive and well. Well, well Boston is not just uh, biblical. Every script, whether you read in Quran or Torah, uh, Bhagavad Gita, any of the spiritual texts that have manifested in our time, um, all speak of the importance of nature, agriculture, and the role that the Creator has played that the creator has created has creator has created that's redundant and um, i think you got my point that the what the creation that we're in we, we're supposed to be responsible shepherds um and taking care of what's around us this is we shepherd our family you shepherd your crops you shepherd your family and the animals that are there to, uh, to feed us and and support this whole process so uh, it's it's a spiritual journey that we should be that we are on, and feeding ourselves is a part of that. That's why so many people say grace over their food. Most every culture, 
They do that. They bless the food that's on the table, bless the preparer for the food, and they do it in, in many different languages, many different spiritual traditions, but it's all the same because, um, in my opinion, there's one creation, one creator. Um, people approach it differently. I understand. Um, and I really want to just sit sit back and just and kind of like unpack your 75 years of experience and of of having seen things and been parts of things here but like we're you know we're talking about how you know farming and specifically farming the right way and farming in uh along like with nature rather than against nature is is going to really like refresh and revitalize these communities that we live in like in your time as having done been in big farms and small farms and been, you know, all around the world, what have, has you seen farming as an agent of moral, do you see it as a, as a realistic agent of moral change in a community? Like, have you seen farming been able to take a community from one place and then bring it up to another place? Like, have you seen it inspire a change in people and in groups of people before? Um, that's an interesting way of, of, of constructing the question. Um, have you, okay, l- l- let me let me try that again. So have you seen like farming take an area that other, like that beforehand was like that, the community did not think well of that people stayed away from that. They, they were like, Oh no, you don't want to go to that side of town. And then the farmers came in, the urban farmers came in or someone came in and then that suddenly became a hub for the broader community to network in. Yeah. Let me try and address that. I I, I will take from another perspective. I've lived long enough and traveled enough to see where not being community, not being close to the soil has, has, has created degeneration um, and destruction, destruction in a community. Um, and that's the problem. This is why we, I, I'm advocating for post-industrial regenerative agriculture to get us back to where we were in the past. So, yes, the work that we do in urban agriculture is my work, particularly with two living well, the oases that we have been able to build. I've twice built the largest farm in Atlanta. And uh, it, they, every, every place we built the farm, I mean, we have many small farm sites that we also had around. Uh, property values go up, crime goes down. We create a green oasis where it's sequestering carbon, creating good, air, nice air, clean air. And there are places of peace where people can bring their children. When you have a market on the farm, that community is built there so people of all different walks of life are able to commune with one another. Um, and when you can and commune with nature, and when you commune with nature, you are communing with God because God is the creator and that is pre- has pre- uh, allowed and prepared the uh, those positive spiritual vibrations that you will feel out on the farm or in the garden. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. So like, and that's like kind of like a, like kind of a a broad sort of 10,000 foot view. I also want to dig a little bit more into like, and feel free to change names or kind of make it a little, the story a little bit more vague if you, if you need to kind of obscure some part of their identity. But like, 
would you be willing to go into like any personal stories of improvement that you've seen that like people like just one individual who you know wasn't in a good place before they came to the farm and then after they you know were part of the community garden or they were you know they were part of the market or something that you've that you saw this wholesale change in who they were and what they stood for oh there's too many examples of that i mean children who came out anticipated our summer summer camps who came there uh sick and left healthy um, the concept of being, you know, when you meet somebody who's kind of flighty, you would say they're not, you would say they're not well grounded. But they come out and they put their hands in the ground, um, they become grounded, and that's it's quite literal. Um, like the young man who worked with us, who, who homeless and, and able to work and, and uh, find a place to live. Another young man who finished school, who, who was really functionally illiterate, but by working with us, he was inspired to go to school, improve uh, his living standards, got a girlfriend. All of this from me being more grounded in the community. We've had folks that have been to jail uh, who changed their life around because they came out and put their hands in that store. One young man in particular, his name was DeMonte, came out. He, he was hardly articulate when he came to us. He had a grill is what they call them, in his mouth of gold teeth and um, his life's ambition was to be a rapper and DeMonte came out there and over the course of the time he was with us his whole life turned around uh, and towards the end of his tenure he was became very articulate and was able to give tours in the garden and show people uh, what we were doing explain to them why we were doing um, and in that sense, he became more grounded. He came from a very desperate home life. Uh, his his uh, uh, refuge, refuge is the word I'm looking for. Ref, yeah, refuge was in the garden was to get away from all that stuff he had to deal with at home. Um, so that was a good thing. That, that's, a, that's a beautiful picture. Seriously. Yeah. That's an ama- amazing story of what connection to the earth and connection to to farming and the land and the food that we eat can inspire in another person's life. I mean, I know that um, I, I spent not have not spent anywhere near as much time as you doing any sort of urban gardening. Um, I I did spend some time uh, doing. I, I volunteered at this uh, uh, inner city ministry in East St. Louis, and I actually read uh, this book called seed folks to some of the kids uh, who were there and uh, it was about this community garden in Cleveland and uh, one one of the main emphases of the book was just like just how like every chapter was devoted to a different person in the garden and how you know some people were more noble some people were less noble but like it was just this diversity of people that made this space more than it could be all on its own and I'm, I'm just curious like you know, if I were to walk onto one of your gardens that you run and that you manage, like, is there an average person that I would see, or is it like more diverse and like more varied that I could possibly imagine? Yeah, much more diverse. Uh, everybody, doctors, lawyers, uh, people on welfare, homeless people all come out and they find that, uh, we had a, a man, an in, a Native American, who came out and he said, told, told us there's a vortex of peace around the farm. 
Uh, and you can feel that. Come on, this is articulated by people how much peace that they experience by being out on the farm. It's a beautiful thing. And uh, I mean, it, isn't it true for you when you go out on the farm, um, out there in those pastures amongst your animals, don't you feel a sense of connection? to the soil, to the earth, to the creation? Oh, I absolutely do. I, I like to tell people, like, whenever you're with specifically animals and, like, you see them just grazing, they're just eating grass, like, when you see animals at peace, like, you become at peace. Like, when you see, and it really helps, like, if you're, you know, you're stressed about something or you're just thinking something and you're just kind of obsessing over it, like, when you see other beings or just, you know, other animals around that that like they're not troubled by anything you, you really start to realize like this isn't worth troubling me like there's not there, like i'm not worth it's not it's not worth ruining my day and it, it's really a lot easier to let it go i imagine it's a lot the same for you yeah mm-hmm absolutely um what what do you feel like are some of the solutions that you would present to some of the most inexorable problems facing the food system in the United States, the, the, the post-industrial food system in the United States and around the world. Like if you had, you know, two, two or three things that you like the, your two or three big ones, what, what would you, what would you, I want to create a, uh, a modern um, homestead act where we spend money to create, and infrastructure to support small farms and urban agriculture. The president is now giving $20 billion to big farms. Okay? And it's based on the out, out, how much they produce, so it's only the big farms that are going to get that money, $20 billion. I am proposing that 1% um, of that amount be directed to small scale, small farms and urban agriculture, and that will be $200 million, which will have a tremendous impact. There's a new bill that's been introduced by Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii for uh, urban agriculture. And over the next several years, when I work to see if we can get it into the new, some of that into the new farm bill, the next farm bill. Um, so it, when I say infrastructure, if I have someone come through my training program, which has been hundreds of people have done that, um, when they get done, they still don't know nothing. They got to get out there and, and make their mistakes so they can learn how to grow. But it costs $2,500 to get an irrigation meter. You know, they need greenhouses, hoop houses, equipment. Uh, how are they going to support themselves for the first six months, nine months, until they're able to make a crop that they can take to, to market? So those are some of the things that need to be put in place. In order, in order to do that, I would like to see it involvement. Think global, but you act local. I would like to see uh, governments... Um, putting money in just as they did when they could, when agriculture was, um, infrastructure was created in this country. There were four acts that were produced in 1862 within 48 days, which laid the foundation for the, have I mentioned this already? Laid the foundation for the create America becoming the most productive agricultural country in the entire history of the world. And how this was done, um, first, the, the Department of Agriculture was, was established. The Department of Agriculture was the first subject matter department. 
and the U.S. government. What do I mean by subject matter? Today you have the Department of Energy, Department of Transportation, Department of Health, Department of Housing, uh, all of these subject matter departments that didn't exist back in the 1850s during the Civil War. So he set up and established the, the People's House, the Department of Agriculture, to promote agriculture, to promote agricultural development in the country. Secondly was the Homestead Act. The Homestead Act paid people to come and grow food up in the Midwest, primarily from Scandinavia. That's why you have all the folks, Swan, the Swansons and Hermansons, all the folks that came from, uh, um, particularly from that area, were brought over here, given land, given money, um, and, and, and divided to put the Homestead Act. Come build. You can look at some of those old cowboy movies. You see them lining up in the wagon going out there to stick out their piece of land. Um, this, is, this is what was done. Um, and Missouri was a part of it, too. Then you had the land-grant colleges. Big Ag does no research whatsoever. None. Okay? All of it is done by the university. Remember now, all this stuff I'm telling you about was paid for by the taxpayer. Big Ag does no research. Just one example. Georgia is a, a chicken state, one of the largest chicken producers here in, in perhaps Arkansas. Um, and... When I got in this business, it took 10 to 12 weeks to produce a broiler. Today, it only takes six weeks. And how is that done? Through the research, the breeding projects that were done by the universities so that the chicken companies themselves, Purdue, Tyson, whoever else, whoever, ConAgra, they did not have to do this research. They took the results from the university. They finally had the Railroad Act. Uh, all this was in 48 days. The Railroad Act paid for um, um, the train to be able to come east, come west. Uh, they wanted to get out to the coast, to the California. Um, but all that equipment that was shipped from the east, cause I, I, don't, I don't recall. I guess Minnesota, Minneapolis has a, had a steel plant, uh, was a modern steel plant. But for the most part, back in those days, all the things that are made of steel were produced in the east and had to be shipped. So to have a railroad to be able to take it out there uh, and gave folks the tools to increase the production. That's the history. What I want to see done now is that same kind of arrangement take place to support small farms and urban agriculture. Now, small farms, when I say small farms, I'm talking about acreages that you'll see in the peri-urban area, just outside of the, around the suburb, uh, as well as inner city um, in the suburbs, which is, 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 is directing. Small farms are going to be a little larger. You're going to have smaller parcels in the city. But there are things that can be done. In Chicago, if you have an empty lot on a block, pay a dollar, you can own it to grow food. Um, two examples from here that have been very supportive. Atlanta is the first city to have an urban ag director. There are now three. Um, but Atlanta was the very first one. And we passed an urban ag ordinance zoning ordinance, which at the time was the most progressive in the country. I don't, and you, it said you can grow food anywhere and you can sell it. Um, if you grow on land that had been previously zoned industrial, you had to get soil test and, and, and a, get the city to sign off for you to be able to grow the food there. That was extraordinary because prior to that, it was technically illegal to grow the food in the city. So this is one of the things that have to be done to make sure that the laws, the ordinances are supportive of what's going on. Uh, the two examples I'll give you is a man that went to the poorest county in the state, uh, one of the poorest counties in the state, and put up 14 hoop houses, three wells, 
three mushroom incubators, greenhouse, compost facility. You know, they're growing chickens out there and the food, and he brought a young man in to build it. He created the whole infrastructure to, put, to support urban agriculture in that area and put somebody in there to do that. So that if the young man who was going to go there is highly talented, and he will be successful, um, but he didn't have the money or the wherewithal to do this himself. So the man who sponsored it, it was, was as if he was the government that came in and provided the infrastructure. The farm that, that Truly Living Well is on now is owned by the city through the housing authority on one of the lots where they used to have a housing project that was taken down. And able to Truly Live Well was able to buy that, that land at a very reasonable price. Uh, so that was a subsidy of support from the city in order to make that urban agriculture happen. And I think this is the kind of, those are a couple of examples as well as the policies that I would like to see put into place so that, that uh, small farms and urban agriculture can thrive. Question, like, so is your vision of this modern homesteading act more of a city-based homesteading where you would find a vacant lot and lay claim to it? Or would it be like another version of, of the Wild West sort of uh, homesteading uh, act? Yeah, it can't be. It's not going to be Wild West. Uh, it, it will have to be structured and controlled, and every community will have to develop its own plan. Again, you think global, you act local. So what we do in, in Atlanta would be different than what's done in Chicago uh, or what's different what, what is different done in Los Angeles it has to be developed with input from the local people to make it happen. Um, so to say that there, there is not one approach to getting it done, what is necessary is the mindset to create that. Now, one of the things that the Food Well Alliance here in, in Georgia has done, uh, they surveyed seven different municipalities in the metropolitan area and they've chosen one to do a food study. Over the course of the year, they're gonna do a food study with input from the local community um, to come up with a plan on how they wanna see their local food economy develop. So it's gonna come from the people. But what is significant is the fact that that money has been put in, put up to help develop this plan with, from the input of the local community. That's what's significant. Um, and I think it's much greater, whatever they come up with, they're still going to need money to implement. Um, so these are the kinds of things that, that can be done and need to be done, and over time, perhaps it will be. We'll see what happens. I'm, I'm going to work. You have an inspiring story, Mr. Nuri. Um, I think that's about all the, the time that we have for today. So thank you for so much for being on the show. Uh uh, is there anything else you'd want to leave with uh, the listeners before you, you go? Yeah, well, if they people like what I hear, I'd be glad to work with them. That's my job at this point. Um, Where could they find you? There you go. My phone number is 404 404-520-8331. 404-520-8331. My, last, my name is Rashid, and you can email me, Rashid, at The Nuri Group. The Nuri. Nuri is my surname. N is in Nancy, U-R-I. The Nuri Group. Rashid at The Nuri Group. And that's my job. If you see, uh, forget an email from me. At the end of it, it says, there's a quotation from George Washington Carver, 
which says it is simply service that measures success. And uh, I believe in that sincerely. So I, I, I appreciate you. You keep up your good work spreading the word. And if I can do anything to help you, give me a holler. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, and thank you so much for spending your valuable time uh, on this interview. It means a lot to me. All right. Peace be unto you too. Bye-bye. Mr. Nuri wants me to uh, remind all you lunatics that there's actually a way, a way that you can also read more about uh, his life and uh, his journey to uh, being an urban farmer. Uh, he wrote a book earlier this year called Growing Out Loud, and it details his very long and illustrious history going all the way from being a pioneering black man at Harvard you know, making his way eventually all around the world and ending up now in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And it's a um, very, very high reviews uh, from what I see. And he's a very interesting guy. So if if that's your kind of thing, you should definitely check it out. Thanks so much. Oh, woof. Ma, moo. Which one are you? I created lots of extra content for you on my Patreon page if you want a deeper dive into my life and the world of regenerative agriculture. I need your support to keep doing this. Depending on how much you want to give, you might either be a brood of hens, guard pups, a flock of sheep, or a herd of cows. Personally, I'm a sticker fanatic. I have a Hydro Flask water bottle on display in my home covered with about 100 stickers from every corner of Colorado. It's one of my most prized possessions. I created a special offer for my fellow sticker fanatics where you'll get a high quality sticker of the podcast logo in the mail if you pledge your support to me on Patreon. Put it on your water bottle, the back windshield, your laptop, a guitar case, or a street light if you're really feeling gutsy. I know it's only taken like six months for me to get it together, but it's been kind of busy here. My dairy cows definitely consumed most of my day, and I just recently dried them off. I have so much time, I barely know what to do with myself. This podcast isn't a super slick production. It's just me in a dark basement in the wee hours of the morning. I need your financial support to keep producing this. If this show means anything to you, if you find some value in it, please consider donating. However you came to find this podcast, your support, any support would be greatly appreciated. If you have any questions or thoughts about this episode or want to sponsor a future one, shoot me an email to austin at letthemeatgrass.org. I might even include your question along with my answer at the end of my next episode. If you thoroughly enjoyed this podcast, subscribe or download it on whatever podcast directory you use. If you're using iTunes and are feeling mighty generous for the next five minutes of your life, please rate it and leave a review. The more reviews I get, the better my chances of being featured in a spotlight. And as self-serving as that sounds, the more attention this podcast gets means that I get to improve the production quality for you. Production assistance was provided by the kissable Kelly Williams. That's my wife. Music was performed by the bodacious Brandon Nelson. If you like Scandinavian folk music, you can find his album Old Yarns by Eloin. That's E-L-O-I-G-N at Bandcamp. 
Cover art was drawn by the radical Rebecca Rabin, and sound engineering was done by the jubilant Jeffrey Hook. If you want any of these marvelous people to help you with your projects, just let me know. That's all I have for now. Stay with me, won't you?